the FT. Hello and welcome to World Weekly. I'm Gideon Rachman. This week we're looking at India. It's a year since Narendra Modi was elected as Prime Minister. His election provoked huge hopes amongst his supporters who were looking for economic regeneration of India, but anxiety amongst his critics who feared his Hindu nationalist agenda. So a year on, how's it going? Joining me in the studio is our former Delhi Bureau Chief, James Lamont, and on the line from Delhi is Victor Mallet, who is our current Bureau Chief in India. James, first, looking specifically at the economics, there was a lot of excitement amongst Indian business about Modi's agenda and the hope that he might reinvigorate the economy. Do you think he's fulfilled those hopes? Well, there were terrifically high expectations after his party's clear victory that he was almost certain to disappoint. And I think investors then were probably over-optimistic on Modi's ability to reform. So I think now we're left with a a mixed picture rather than a sense of far-reaching change. And although there's talk about surpassing China's economic growth rate, business is impatient. I think there is no big picture. You're seeing the markets softening a little, uh, the rupee weakening, bond yields going up and an equity rally running out of steam. And that's principally because they feel that the reform agenda has slowed. And Aaron Shuri, one of the uh, ministers in the previous Vajpayee government, tells it beautifully by saying, essentially what you have is a jigsaw puzzle, pieces spread across the floor, but no clear picture emerging. Victor, do you think that's a fair summary? And do you feel that Modi's finding it more difficult to reform than, than perhaps he ever envisaged? Yes, I do. Uh, James is right. Expectations were very high, and it is incredibly hard to turn India around. You know, it does have this incredible bureaucracy, and it is 1.3 billion people spread across 29 states. And Modi previously ran the state of Gujarat, which was already a fairly business-minded state. And it is incredibly hard to transform things. Uh, But he has actually done quite a lot. If you look at the list of things, it's not that unimpressive. Bureaucracy has been energized. Corruption at the higher levels has certainly been tackled. Foreign investment limits have been raised in a whole bunch of sectors, including insurance and defense. And yes, it's true that some things haven't happened, but then some of those are on the way, like the application of a law to introduce a goods and services tax across the country, which would really make India a proper single market. Now, that, that probably is on track, although whether they'll do it by the hoped-for deadline of April next year is, is a moot point. But the point is they have actually begun quite a lot of things. I think the disappointment in the business community stems from the fact that real economic activity hasn't picked up yet on the ground in terms of investment in infrastructure, in terms of consumer spending in the rural areas and so on. And and that's what people are waiting for before they can say, yes, you know, that this is really a, a huge transformation. And Victor, I mean, you saw the Indian finance minister last week, interviewed him for the FT. Did he come across as somebody who was still uh, confident and and had a good story to tell? Yes, I think so. I mean, one thing that he talked a lot about, not because he wanted to, but because we asked him, was this: they have got themselves in an incredible tangle over tax, both for foreign direct investors and for um, investors in the markets. And this really is is a problem of their own making. It's true that they inherited an awful retrospective tax law and a bunch of other laws that they said they wouldn't apply, for example, to institutional investors in the market. But they sort of failed to clear up the mess. It's quite hard to see what they should have done. But most people say they should have just said, "Okay, these retrospective laws are wrong, which they did say, and therefore we will scrap them. 
and we will not apply them. But instead, what happened is that the, the sort of tax officials went out gaily applying these laws that the government said it didn't approve of and issuing enormous tax bills to various investors. And then the government's message got a bit confused. I mean, James, as somebody you know who's been following this story from both inside India and outside, do you still feel that that India is basically moving in the right direction? And what are the big next steps that they really need to tackle? Well, I think it's certainly big on vision and big on ambition. India always is. I think in this period, this year, what the Modi government has focused on, as Victor said, is clean up rather than growth. And having been there at the end of the last government, where I think there was a real paralysis in government, that the great hopes for Manmohan Singh, the then Prime Minister, had not really materialised in terms of what he could do in economic reform. A change brought with it uh, enormous expectation that uh, uh, Narendra Modi and Aaron Jaitley, his finance minister, could really make make a difference. I think in terms of the reform programme that they've laid out, it looks good. But it's whether you can implement and whether you can deliver on old promises rather than issuing lots of new ones. And you can see that the interview that uh, Aaron Jaitley gave to Victor, he's trying to accelerate, trying to restart, trying to talk it up again. But a lot of it is in the nitty gritty of passing legislation, of stimulating with expenditure, particularly in the rural economy, getting through, as Victor says, the uh, general sales tax, a land acquisition bill. It's getting these sort of building blocks in place. There have been hopes for the last 10 years that India would exceed China's economic growth rate. I think India is now predicted to be about 7%. But again, you can see the finance minister talking it up. Uh, eight to, or nine, to eight or eight or nine percent, but it feels like we've heard it before, and you really need infrastructure spending to come in, private and public investment coming in, and we aren't seeing that. Yeah, I think one should say that the surprisingly disappointing thing is how little the Modi government has looked at the sort of building blocks of long-term prosperity and development, and that means health and, and particularly education, where they don't really seem to have done very much at all. And they've come in for a lot of criticism. The government's argument is, oh, yes, you know, but we're devolving power and money to the states. And this is an ongoing process. And, and really, it's up to the individual states to do things, which is all very well. But the fact that they've paid barely any attention to the importance of education, I think, is a little bit disturbing. And on the question of social harmony and this Hindu nationalist agenda that Mr. Modi is often said to carry with him, and indeed his party explicitly says it's a Hindu nationalist party, has that had impacts of the kinds that civil libertarians worried about before he was elected? People are still worried. And, and I think the people who were worried about Modi feel that some of their fears have been confirmed. There have been some incidents of vandalism against Christian churches, the names of Muslim kings and rajas that were on some of the street signs in Delhi were defaced. But actually, I think by the standards of Indian history, there hasn't been a great upsurge of intercommunal violence. And the sort of thoughtful critics of Modi will say that he himself has actually been very careful to sort of maintain neutrality and, and try not to get involved in any Hindu fundamentalist statements or movements. And in fact, he's kept, as he has done for the last decade, really, he's kept the real extremists at arm's length. But where the Congress part of the opposition now criticizes him is for not standing up more publicly and saying, look, we are a secular state. 
you know, every minority has the right to have its own religion and so on. And he's said to have sinned by omission in not making his neutrality and his secularism and his urge to development absolutely clear as a priority. Having said that, actually, in the last few weeks, he has been coming out a little bit more. And he does show himself able to respond to criticism. So, for example, when the Christians were very upset, he came out and, uh, and addressed a whole group of Christian leaders and made a very clear statement in favour of freedom of religion. And that is, I think, a good thing. James, I mean, I get the impression that certainly outside India, some of the anxieties about Modi have subsided a bit and that a lot of the negativity towards him has really reversed over the last year. People seem prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt. Or is that a misreading? No, I think you're right. I think you've seen him on this transition from chief minister in Gujarat, where he came with history around the Gujarat riots and the response to that, to the prime minister's office. And I think people have internationally given him the benefit of the doubt because, you know, he's come to the centre You have seen the communal issues that people expected to be a weak point with a BJP-led government really not come to the fore in the way that they could have done. Instead, what you've seen is Modi's strongest card probably has been foreign policy. And he has, in his style of leadership, which is autocratic, and I think there are worries about that, about how a lot is centred on the prime minister's office and not the cabinet. And he has a cabinet which seems to be run by about three people rather than it being a large cabinet where things are discussed. You know, what you've seen is is a man who has tried to establish India more on the foreign policy circuit, particularly with the US, China and Japan, and uh, in their own neighbourhood making overtures to Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. But you've seen him play a, a foreign policy card which perhaps people didn't expect him to do. Yeah, Victor, I mean, James mentions foreign policy and last week... Modi was in China. How do you see him positioning India in the world? I mean, particularly between the great powers of the region. Yeah, no, that's completely right. I mean, his um, his great sort of unexpected successes really have been in foreign policy. As James said, he started off with the neighbours, and and then he's moved on to the great powers. And I think he is clearly a senior diplomat. Put it to me the other day. You know, he's trying to put India on the world map again. And I think he's been notably successful in that, meeting Obama, meeting the Japanese leader, meeting Chinese president, uh, you know, and he's, he's really done a lot of foreign travel and actually taken people aback by focusing almost more on that than on the economic development programs that he talked about in the election campaign. Because remember that in the election campaign, there was almost no mention of foreign policy at all. I mean, it was a very, very minor part of the campaign on both sides. And, you know, China is definitely seen as the biggest threat for India in the long term. And he's, while not alienating China, he's clearly trying to strike up friendships with the people who can support India in any kind of confrontation or challenge from China. And that is the US, Japan and Australia in particular, but that also applies to minor states on the periphery of China like Mongolia. So he's been quite canny, I think. And the getting together with the neighbors is very important because they were sort of becoming almost client states of China, even though they were next to India. And he has I think, at least started to reverse that process quite successfully. OK. Victor Mallet and Delhi, thank you very much indeed. Thanks also to James Lamont here in the studio in London. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.